Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. This is our second to last episode for season one. We'll be back in two weeks with our final episode, where I'll debrief about everything we've learned in our first season with Steph George, our producer. Don't worry, we'll make sure you know how to stay engaged and when season two will be coming out. This is your host, Aaron Allgood, social impact strategist, consultant, and activist at heart. This week, you'll hear my conversation with Emma Shapiro-Weiss and Lisa Demain, the co-executive directors of 350 New Hampshire, a climate justice organization. 350 New Hampshire is constantly working to create a more just and livable future for generations to come through their direct actions, legislative advocacy, and organizing across the state. The two of them share powerful stories from their lives as activists and their experience in nonviolent direct actions, including an in-depth look at the biggest act of civil disobedience in New Hampshire since the Clamshell Alliance's actions in the 70s and 80s. There's an electricity and tenderness in our conversation that I know will inspire you to find your own place in the climate movement. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, today, I'm talking with Lisa Domain and Emma Shapiro-Weiss from 350 New Hampshire, which is a climate justice organization. They're both co-directors and have been doing kick-ass work in New Hampshire for a really long time in various different roles, actually. And so, and I've known both of you for a really long time at this point, too. Lisa, I don't remember when we first met, but it was definitely in activist circles. And Emma, I met you through New Leaders Council in New Hampshire. But I'm just so excited to to just know both of you and to be having this conversation today. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited to to chat formally, I guess, but also informally. Yeah, this conversation will take all sorts of twists and turns for sure. Um, do you both mind just giving a little bit more about your background and how you came to do this work today? And yeah. Lisa, you can go first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, my name is Lisa Demain. I use she/her pronouns. I grew up in a smaller town in New Hampshire, and also went to the University of New Hampshire. And while I was there, I learned all about. Um, fossil fuel divestment organizing, so getting the school to stop investing in fossil fuels in their endowment. And along the way, I learned a lot about the political importance of New Hampshire when it comes to the presidential primary. Um, This upcoming cycle of presidential primary will be my third time engaging in all different ways to get these candidates to talk about climate emergencies and taking action at the necessary levels that we need action to be taken. I've also been a handful of engagements with different organizations in New Hampshire, usually doing supporting people that are working with volunteers so that we can get more people engaged across the state. And then specifically with 350 New Hampshire, I um, was a board member of our action, which is our political arm. And then I also am now on staff. So my role right now is fundraising and operations and making sure that everyone gets paid and we get the work done. Yeah, I kind of fell into this work. Well, I don't think it was an accident. It was, I went to school for environmental work. I was really, I was in a stage of really wanting to um, protect the natural world, to protect animals. And I ended up going to this very small school up in Maine called College of the Atlantic. And I came out of that work really wanting to do documentary video and combining my love for video with uh, my love for the environment. And I ended up becoming a freelance video editor after that and not doing any of that work at all. I was really working with like small businesses and yeah, doing a lot of freelance work. So kind of whatever, whatever projects came up, I, I was doing. And at the time, I was, you know, living on the seacoast. I didn't have much of a community. And then the 2016 election happened. And I was really involved, or I was like politically conscious before that. So my parents were activists when they were younger. I, in high school, I have photos of myself like wearing my Obama shirt uh, that I can't believe they let me wear to school <laughs> at the time. But when 2016 election happened, I was really, really distraught at how we'd kind of gotten to that place in this country. And it it really instantly activated me to like start volunteering, to get more involved 
in community efforts. And I actually started volunteering with 350 New Hampshire and getting involved in their offshore wind campaign and doing my first city council testimony and learning how to tell my personal story and all of that. And I reached out to a 350 New Hampshire staff person and was like, how do I do this work? How can I make this? I see you doing this work and getting paid for it. How do I do that as well? Do I have to go back to school? Uh, What's the deal with this career? And he was like, no, you don't have to go back to school for it. And I know of a job opening and uh, helped connect me to a position that was open in another organization that I ended up getting. and And I worked at that organization for a couple of years. But I was really interested in doing state level work and in doing um, fossil fuel fights. So when a job opened at 350 New Hampshire for the 2020 presidential primaries, I jumped on it pretty quickly, and and I've been I've been here ever since. I it forgot that it was like the 2020 election that you were. That's when you first stepped in. So you were pre pandemic at at 350, right? Or no? Yeah. Oh. Yep. I know. I I know. It's very, it's strange to think though that so, so much of my time with 350 has been during COVID though. And yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think about the kind of actions and like events and community engagement we were doing in the, in the year before COVID. And now to think about so much time being on, on, mostly online, it's been wild. Yeah. And the fact that you're doing such like kick-ass organizing well, all working remotely and, you know, or not entirely remotely, but coming together to do in-person actions and things like it's, mm-hmm. it's really amazing what you've been able to do. I would love to hear just, you know, I think the the idea of like a co-executive director, like leadership model is a little bit probably foreign to people because it's hard enough just to be in a leadership role, I think. And so the idea of sharing that role or not sharing that role, but having complementary like overlapping you know, kind of functions within that role. Love to hear just how the two of you navigate that and like what are some of the awesome aspects of being co-directors? Or yeah, co- I should I like, say co-EDs, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is co-executive directors. Sometimes, you know, it's weird to say executive, like, oh, I'm an executive of a nonprofit because it like that's a corporate language choice. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, I I love having a thought partner in Emma because I, like I said, I'm new to fundraising. Um, I came on in April of 22 and um, being able to have that conversation before we make either together or I'm making a pitch to a potential funder and or a potential donor that I'm just learning the understandings of why that person's investing in 350 New Hampshire is really helpful for me to get either like that confirmation or that little bit of a pivot to like what makes more sense in that conversation with other people. And then just in the day-to-day work, it's really good to not be the person answering every single Slack message from every single person in the organization. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think that is the biggest benefit is having a thought partner. Like when I was doing the transition between co-directors. So Lisa, how long have you been on? It feels like- It's coming up on a year. Like it's going to be a year in, it'll be a year by the time this episode drops. So it is wild to me that you haven't been on for longer than a year. But um, when I was was thinking about in that transition and hiring a new co-director, what, how how much I value having a co-director and how if I were ever- uh, ED somewhere else that I would want to transform the organization to allow for having a co-director because I love the model so much. And, and exactly that. It's that being an ED, there are lots of really big decisions that you have to make about, about people's pay, about strategic direction, all of these really huge choices. And you're working with a, a really big budget. And not that when you're an executive director that you don't have thought partners, but it's really nice to have someone who is again, equal to you, who has kind of just as much stake in the organization as you do to make those choices with. So I, I think that is that is the biggest part. And for sure, like the division of labor is also huge. And I think we both still have too much work to handle, but it's still, I, yeah, I couldn't really imagine not having, not having someone to, to share 
the work with. And I'm, I'm also not a person that I think that some people gravitate towards ED roles, like for like the power and for maybe for the resume or, and that's just not anything I've really been interested in. So I love that the shared part of the leadership, the shared part of the power, because I think as someone who has kind of the most power of an organization, you really need to be thinking about everything. And I think that a lot of EDs don't. Yeah. It's like, I think that a lot of, I mean, I work with so many executive directors and it's just the sheer amount of stuff they have on their plate, like as you were just alluding to is huge. The work's never ending. And, and I think in nonprofits, there's this like, just this tendency to just have so, so much work at all, any given time. But then also to sometimes just having that like singular perspective doesn't, you know, folks can kind of get like the blinders on over time and yeah. not necessarily see the whole picture of an organization. So I like that that's part of of your model here is like you both have that ability to talk to one another and kind of you're coming at it from different angles for sure. Yeah. And you all come in like with your own privilege, with your own backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have someone and we're, Lisa and I have a good relationship where we're able to just honestly like check each other if something isn't landing right. Yeah. That, and it's also nice to have someone like that's on the inside games. So, like you're talking about somebody that has like that same level of stake in it. Like I'd much rather talk about this with somebody who like understands all the inner workings than like gossip about it to my best mm-hmm. friend on the phone and be like, this is why work is difficult today. Like, <laughs> no, I want someone to like help me get to the solution of where we want to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I try. I try to like talk to my partner about this and he's like, remind me which organization you're talking about again. <laughs> like I I made him a little map last year so he would understand like all the different organizations I was talking. He, I think he is, he lost it. So he doesn't know. He's like, I have to make it again so I can understand what you're talking about. <laughs> that's like, I think that's, you know, like that kind of partnership. You grow so close in this kind of a partnership. And I love that you said that you can check each other whenever you need to as well. and just. I mean, that's, that is like one of the best markers I think of a good partnership is that you can, you can be like, Hey, that's not okay. That's not sitting right. That's not, you know, working. Like, let's talk through it. It's not like you can kick each other out of the clubhouse, you know, like you're like, you have to, you have to work through those kinds of things. And like doing that kind of conflict resolution, I think people don't ever, people don't necessarily like flex those muscles or or grow those muscles very easily. So I would love to talk a little bit more about, um, some of the like amazing actions that you have done here in the state. And I think that what has happened really over the last, I don't know, five years or so with 350 New Hampshire is you've all just like come out as being this like huge powerhouse, you know, within the state in terms of just the work that you're doing and the impact that you have and just the unapologetic way in which you do that work too which I love to see you give both smile a little bit when I say that, um, because you're challenging such big oppressive systems and you're doing it in a way that like, there is not a compromise necessarily within the work that you're doing. Um, so I'd love to just hear you both talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think just sharing like how we met each other is a good one. If we want to start yeah. with no coal, no gas. So um, the last coal fired coal plant in New England is in Bow, New Hampshire. And there has been a campaign called No Coal, No Gas to find its closure date and transition it into something that would be much more beneficial to people in New Hampshire. And one of the big actions was in the fall of 2019. And we had all these plans and then all the plans went to shit because the police (laughs) decided to come in full force. So we came with some shovels, but mostly five gallon buckets. And we said that if People at the the government level, people at the government level weren't going to stop this coal plant. Then we were going to take the coal out bucket by bucket. And um, we had Tyvek white suits on and we looked really cool. And we sang some songs as we like walked up. And eventually we all, there was two different merges of people. One large group of people were coming forward with buckets. And slowly we had this great plan where in your buddy system, if one buddy is going to engage, be like arrested by the police, then that other buddy is going to stay right with them. So they have some sort of emotional support along this process of whatever that looks like. 
And Emma and I were one of like the six pairs that made it as far as we could because there is 70 people arrested, I think, or 80 something. What's the number? It was 69. 69. That was the final. And most people had like trespassing charges. But Emma and I were part of this small group of people and we had to immediately make this decision of where we were going to kind of like hold our ground. And we decided that it would be in a circle around a part of the train tracks that were bringing in the coal itself. And we were met by all sorts of officers of all different levels of government or all different bodies of offices. And they were in full gear. They had their, you know, vision face coverings. They had weapons. They had full body protection on them, body suits. And I remember a moment after, because like, I forget which one of us got arrested first, but then the other one, you know, you're like, basically like, you might as well arrest me too, because I'm not leaving this person's side. But there was a moment where they separated all of us and found our, you know, identifying information. And we were all like sitting with our, our arms zip tied behind our back. And I went back to like this piece of where we were singing at the beginning. And I was like, what was one of the songs from the beginning? Because right now we're all physically separated. And like, how can we somehow mentally stay together? And so we started singing, I forget what song, but it was some song that was very helpful. And that is like one of the pieces that's like stayed in that campaign is like how powerful you can be together among song. Like there's a singing cohort going on right now that's, or that's about to start right now. And I think there's just like, pieces to these big actions that you don't think about, but are so important for the people that are there. There was a different action in uh, fall of 21, I think it was, that Emma was more involved in. But my experience, and then you can follow up with that if or if we can switch to a whole other campaign if we want to. But my experience in the 2021 fall campaign was singing and shouting to the people that were locking down or um, trying to dig out pavement from the entrance to the coal plant and singing we love you or you know just saying these affirmations and support to people that were risking a lot of things and that's one of the things with these arrestable potential actions is that you're not making an action decision for that day you're deciding to engage with the court system you're deciding to risk a day that you have to get off of work to go to court or a day you need to find childcare that you don't normally have to find childcare for those days and helping people understand that even though that's such a big risk to some people for other people, they can't even take that risk. And so like, how do we engage with what is happening for ourselves that are like, this is a climate crisis, like underline the word crisis. And what can I do in a collective effort with other people so that we can get more people to understand that they need to like go hands in on this. And also knowing that like every hand on the plow is really important and people need to be running parking. Like that's what I ran in 2021. I was like running the parking situation and like that's so important as well. So I'll stop there. But I think it's just like really important for us to know, especially if there's more arrestable actions in any space that you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know if I can do that. It's worth exploring that for yourself. It's worth reaching out to whoever is coordinating that and being like, what does this really look like for me? And like, there's always going to be a little bit of a question mark, but it's better to get that clarity instead of just saying, oh, I'm not really sure what that looks like and I'm not going to engage. Yeah. I When I first started with this No Coal, No Gas campaign, it was at the very beginning of uh, my start at 350 New Hampshire. So it was, I think, my first day when I was on the ground in New Hampshire. I like had a meeting that first day with someone and we were talking about planning planning this big event in, in Bo. And I had never been involved in direct action before. I had definitely been to a lot of events, a lot of marches, but my kind of career in the environmental space was very geared towards legislative advocacy and elections. So I definitely had put my time in to, you know, making 200 calls a day to get people to the polls or um, going and getting people to make calls to their state reps to ask them to vote on a certain bill. And all of that is is super important. But there's something that direct action and this campaign has brought me that I have never felt in other any other kind of 
you know, tactic, method, way of, in, of engaging in, in this crisis. And I think that, yeah, if that is something people are interested in, it can be a really transformational, powerful tool uh, for a lot of different reasons. I think one part of it is you're definitely getting to know people in a way you would never otherwise get to know people. Like it's super cool that Lisa and I are co-directors now because I just have this very distinct memory of like us touching elbows with each other as I'm like moving past a cop for the first time in my life. And when someone, a cop is telling me to stop and just like moving past, moving past, very like powerful moment uh, to be in relationship with someone else like that. And, and, you know, there have been so many of those moments with comrades in that campaign that I've had. And I think that it's also important to note that we are having these really deep conversations before and after and during every action about, you know, what is the strategic value of what of it? What are people going to say when they look at it? How are people going to feel when they look at it? What does it mean that we get to do this? Like who who historically made it possible for us to do these actions or who are we, you know, taking inspiration from? And like, how are these, all of these things interweaving? Like exactly like Lisa was saying about uh, going into the court system. Like in that first action, I, I spent years in court after that. And for some people and for me, court ended up being a much scarier experience than the original action itself. It can be extremely isolating, even with uh, the like huge amount of work we did to try to make it not feel isolating and to try to get support throughout that entire process. It can still be extremely yeah, isolating to um, to be talked to that way, to be kind of belittled by a structure that is really supposed to be supporting us and supporting everyone, but it, it does the complete exact opposite. And, and really just like understanding how all of these systems of oppression are connecting together is like a huge, a huge part of direct action. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing that. It's, it's like you said, transformative experience. You know, I was there like very briefly at the day of, in Bo, like you both had already gone in, I think. And just to witness it myself was just really, really inspiring. And then I, I like vowed at that point to be the next time y'all needed somebody to go get arrested <laughs> that I would join you <laughs> because I'm like, I am one of those people who like, I have, I have the ability to be, to do that. And it wouldn't, you know, I have the privilege to be able to like get arrested and it will, you know, it'll impact my life, but, but I'm, but okay. You know, in an okay way. One of the things that I have, I remember talking to somebody not that recently, but about this, but I was just sharing and telling them, you know, how awesome like 350 New Hampshire is and, and talking about the direct actions. And this person was like, wait, why is that good that they're going and getting arrested? Like, why, how is, how, why should you, why are you supporting that? You know, they're breaking the law. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, it, it is a very, very important aspect of activism, but I'll let you too, if you don't mind kind of like speaking to, you know, why direct action like that? You know, why is that important? Yeah. And I feel like certainly people say that to me. I don't know if people say that to you, Lisa, but I get that kind of regularly, especially with older volunteers that are kind of like, well, if you put half the energy you do into some of these actions into installing light bulbs in everyone's home, energy efficient light bulbs <laughs> in everyone's home, then like we would Carbon be done pricing. with the coal plant. <laughs> I, I do start with like saying that like we definitely do more than direct action. You know, we're we're involved at the legislative level. Well, we're very involved in elections. We run a, a number of different campaigns that, you know, target uh, getting a climate emergency, that target like getting a ton of youth involved in climate activism and in all of these different ways. And like direct action is definitely a part of what we use to get to where we need to be. But I think it's really important to recognize that like, we are at a very pivotal point in this country and around the world where our legal structures are not stopping this crisis. They're actually impeding us from stopping this crisis. And if we're relying, relying on legislators and the legal process 
And we just think, like, give it our best hope that that is going to work out for the entire world. I, it's not. It's, it's not. We're already seeing the impacts of the climate crisis. People are already dying from it. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to wait for anyone else to change the law in order to make what, what we're doing, you know, legal. I mean, we, we just have to do it now. We have to take action now or else, you know, we're going to feel the even worse impacts of the climate crisis. I'm thinking about capitalism in that structure because the whole point of capitalism is to find how to make the most money and use up all these resources. And that's how we got to where we are today. And the capitalism within elected official realm and that sort of work is how do I stay elected? And I don't really need to pay attention to the people that are giving me $3 through their IRS taxes. Like it's tax season. And my roommate was like, what is this $3 to the presidential campaign? And I was like, oh, it's like a publicly, you know, it's a public area for people to just give the same amount of money to different presidential candidates. And she was like, oh, I'm not giving my $3 to that. It's like, okay, well, you can do that. But also, like, how are these people running for office? And when they do get elected, are they just chasing after the money? You know, like our our engagement before my time on staff with like Senator Maggie Hassan's work was like, you're funded by some fossil fuel money. Like, you're trying to say that you're a climate candidate and like you're not. And we didn't get that much of an engagement from their staff. But we did get pushback from like some of our friends that were in other organizations being like, why are you coming up to this Democratic senator and saying that she's not doing a good job. And it's like, she's not doing a good job. That's that's why she's supposed to represent us. And she's not listening to some of the people that she's representing. It, and it's worth saying to people, too, that the systems and the structures that you're telling us to work within are the ones that have allowed like coal plants to stay online and kill people mm-hmm. and pipeline, massive pipelines to be built and approved right now that are going to spill and and kill people. And so it's kind of a, a question back at them as to how how do you feel like you have been protected or that people have been protected by the by these structures. Um that I yeah, that I'd be interested to know how people view that. I mean, I think you both would hopefully agree with this. You know, and please tell me if you don't, but like that folks just don't want to you know, when you when you have that, like, that veil pulled back, when you get to see things more clearly like that, it means you actually have to, like, take action in some shape, way, or form. Like, you don't get to just sit on the sidelines, you know, and and I think a lot of people aren't ready for that or would prefer to stay ignorant to it. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's always people that are like, I can't, you know, I got two jobs, I got a kid, I can't. And then it's like, okay, like what, how do I meet you where you're at? Like that is some of the language used in this space is like meeting somebody where they're at. Like what is the first step that they can take? And if that person, it's just like getting them to vote in the town election in addition to the presidential election, that is like the one step for other people that are already really engaged. Then it's like, okay, let's develop their leadership skills and get them to pull other people into this movement. And like, I think that there's, there's definitely some folks like you're saying that are just like, yeah, it's going to end. And like, that's it. We're all gonna, whatever we're gonna like, I, I think I saw this before. But like, I know someone who thinks that like, the so- solution to the climate crisis is billionaires helping us populate Mars. And like, no, who's going to be living on Mars, the billionaires, <laughs> like, you are not part of the saving of people environment, if that's how we're investing in climate solutions. And, you know, if, if Bill Gates is going to invest in the things that he wants to invest in and we're not where we're at with all of his money, then like, how are we supposed to figure out that like this, that we're, we're finding the solutions. So like we're focusing on local, both in the cross the state in New Hampshire, but also like micro local in the specific regions that our chapters are in and supporting people to plug in in the ways that they know that they can and the ways that are a little bit of a stretch that like our organizers can get them to do that little bit of a stretch of how to engage, whether it's with skill building or, or other means. But we just want to make sure that people know like there, there is a way to plug in where you're finding community and where 
you are able to talk with people who have similar values and be able to be like, I'm not the only person. I'm not just scrolling Reddit, getting sad about the news that I'm seeing on Reddit. And like, I can take action in my local, whatever, my town or even just like at my church and be able to say like, hey, like, let's do a pass the pan for 350 New Hampshire. Like, that's how we get some of our money is like somebody who's just heard of us through a sermon. And that's great. And other people, they're like, no, I want to make sure that my town votes for community power. So I'm going to run a petition and I want to get the word out and we'll see on when, on town hall meeting day. But it's just really exciting for people to understand that they can do something towards the vision of the world that they want. And that's the other piece and I'll end there. But like the vision of what you want versus the stopping of the bad is always mm. a conversation piece that I've been a part of since like 2014, it feels like, of there's people that don't want to be involved in the anti-bad. And there's people that are like, we just only want to be a part of the like pro-good. And that's fine. Like we can do both and we can do all of these things because we need all hands on deck to do all of the things to get to anywhere that we need to be for like our high school youth team to be able to have a reasonable lifespan in our, our, our world right now. So that's just my little rant. Yeah. And I think one, one thing that you were talking on Lisa is super important and that's about community, community building. And when we engage in these actions, like the goal is not, I think arrests become a huge, huge emphasis of our work, but that's not really the goal. We really center it around the community building. And like, we're trying to build a network of climate resilience, climate dissonance, like people who are very skilled, people that have created really strong communities with each other and that can help weather the storm (laughs) for what's coming in the future. And I think that's when I look at the kind of activism that I want in my life right now and in the future, it's really that. It's being part of this really strong community that is learning together, that's really deeply networked and in deep relationship with each other, and not necessarily centering around an arrest because that, you know, I don't necessarily choose to be arrested. That is something that I think the the police make a choice on, in my opinion. Hmm. I think that is a very astute point. And I want to, I don't have anything articulate in response. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you, <laughs> so I'm going to ask my next question. Um, you know, working in these kinds of spaces is hard and challenging. Like both of you just kind of shared some of that. And in like any kind of activism, any kind of movement spaces, there's that tendency to burn out for folks too, because you are working towards that big vision of what you want the world to look like. And so we see that there's the work is never ending. And so folks will, you know, kind of meet that never ending, you know, task list, never ending, you know, actions, like all, all of those kinds of things and just never give themselves a break. Um, so I'd love for the two of you just to talk about, you know, what is it? What does that mean in your like, what does rest in the movement space look like? What does burnout in the movement space look like? And how do you both manage that? I think that burnout is such an interesting conversation to have because at a certain degree, like burnout in a capitalistic society is just like a reality that we are often living with. Like I'm 31. I don't know any 31 year old who's not burnout and who has not been burnout for years at this point. And the last few years have been such a slog and so tiring. And it's been so sad to feel like so undervalued by society and to just like not get an inch. So I I really see burnout from everyone at this point. But especially in this kind of work, it is interesting to look at because there is this kind of like secondary impulse that you cannot take a break because lives are at stake or because we're in a moment or because like this is our time for so many different movements. That is a thing you always have in your mind. That's the thing you always tell people because it's true, but it also means that sometimes you can't allow yourself to take a break. Uh, And so I just see people just 
keep going and going and going. And I have seen a lot of burnout and I have seen a lot of turnover, at least in New Hampshire. Like when I started, people on staff at different organizations look completely different than they do now. I have not seen a lot of people consistently stay in same positions. And I don't blame them. I think that changing changing your role and changing jobs can also often feel like a way to like revive yourself a little bit, even if you don't dislike your role. I think it can help you just feel like things are a little different. So I think that's one thing that I've talked to some people in the movement about. It's like, if you're feeling burnt out, I think you might need to switch roles or just take like a little bit of a rest if you can. Um, and just not do, just not do anything, even if you're feeling this, this huge amount of urgency. But I think it's also that burnout for some reason, we've, we've come to feel like burnout is like not an acceptable, just like emotion and place to be in. And I feel like we kind of tell people that it's okay to come, like, come angry, come pissed off or come sad, but we never are like, come burn out, <laughs> like, right. come burn out to this action. <laughs> and I think that that is okay. Like, it is okay to be somewhere and just be like, I, on this scale of one to 10, I'm a five and I'm not really feeling this right now. Like my heart's not in it a 100% because I'm a little burnt out. And like the movement needs you exactly as you are like right now, not mm -hmm. necessarily like where you hope you are or where you were pre-pandemic. Like just, just be here and listen to yourself when you can or <laughs> talk to your, talk to your other movement buddies when you can about what you're feeling. <laughs> Yeah, I like the question that we have in our like check ins, like our manager managey check ins, like the one I have with our comms director who I manage is like, how are you really? And we'll be a little honest, we'll be like, you know, stressed about this random personal life thing, or feel like the plate is perfectly full and can't put one more thing on it. Or like, she's great. And she like schedules in time into her week of like, random pop up things that she knows are going to pop up, but she doesn't know what they are. And I'm like, wow, you are on top of things. <laughs> but yeah, like, like, just to get a little into like my personal stuff around burnout, like I, I entirely like jumped ship after COVID started, I was living by myself, managing um, a team of people who were making calls to independent voters in New Hampshire. This so like, this remember, this is like spring of 2020. And we were asking people on a scale of one to 10, like their support of certain values and then connecting those values to Biden or Trump. And once you start saying either of those names at that time, you are clearly able to identify how this person is voting or not voting. Even And if you think about like who is answering the phone and is talking and listening enough, it's usually like older folks who only have landlines. And I was just getting berated by Trump supporters by myself. And I had no one at home. It was just me. And I couldn't process being yelled at by like older white men saying that I was, you know, like this liberal, whatever language you want to use. And I just couldn't handle it. And my friend was actually one of the people I was managing. She's great. And she and I had a check-in and we were like, honestly talking about our check-in. And she was like, I can tell, like, I can tell that you want to leave. And I was like, you're right. Like I'm giving my notice like in the next week. And for her to like be somebody that was just like, I can read it in your face and the way that you're like acting in these spaces that like your heart isn't in doing this specific type of work right now. And you might need to take a break. And I was like, you're right. Like I, it wasn't the, the the come to moment, but I was leaning towards that way. And I, I'm really appreciative of her to like be that mirror to me. And I took a break and I like worked at Target and I worked at uh, random places. I learned about some blue collar work in New Hampshire. And 350 New Hampshire was my next like organizing related paid work. So I took a break for about two years and learned a lot, but also was trying to plug in and I just couldn't plug into the way I wanted to because I was so hands down involved in like 2014 to 2020, early 2020, I was hopping between a bunch of different like full-time positions in organizing work. And I wanted to get back into that. But I also knew that my brain couldn't handle 
so many interactions with so many different people, like directly calling voters. Like I'm going to throw down on election day and the weeks leading up to that for canvassing and stuff like that. But that's not my month to month as we lead up to that work. And I'm really grateful for like Emma's work and the folks that Emma manages to be able to execute that work because it's something that I know, but it's something that I know is not going to help me in the long term. And that's what people need to figure out. It's like, what are, you know, what's the first two, three things I think I can do? And let's try that. And do I need support? And how do I find that support? And that person can also help you direct you over to like, oh, you're great at writing letters to the editor. Let's do that. And like find them on like social media posts or something like that. Like there's like my, I really just want to make sure that people understand that like, there are so many ways to engage and like there is somebody in your community that wants to help you engage in that way that knows the toolkit for that and that that's like step one two and three i forgot about the time that you worked at target because like in my mind you've always like <laughs> you forgot when i worked third no, shifts no no the shelves i mean until you said it i completely had like been out of my mind because I just associate you so much with activism that I I forgot about that little interlude but in like but also you know knowing you at that time like that was just so vitally important you know to for you to take that break and you know one of the things like you both just kind of said that made or was making me think about this is that you know giving people the the space to kind of figure out where they can plug in but also the space to say, oh, I tried that. And that's like, they took a no thank you bite. And then they're like, nope, I want to do something else in this, you know, is like, okay, too. Because I, I mean, this is not super relevant. But like, I had somebody reach out to me recently about grant writing. And they're like, oh, we have a grant due on Thursday, and we can pay you. Can you help us with this? And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately, I can't. No, what I don't, I despise grant writing and will never do it. Um, really. But just, you know, I'm like, I, I figured out what I was good at. And that was most definitely not the place in which I plug into is grant writing. You know, mm-hmm. even on a volunteer basis, it's not something that I would, would, it's not where I would volunteer my skills for sure. But I do think that like have, giving folks that space in that, um, in the grace, I think, to like figure out how to plug in in ways that, that makes sense to them. And also, I guess just how important it is for the soul to be part of collective work too. Mm-hmm. because capitalism has made it so that we're all so focused on our individual needs that we forget that like our needs oftentimes get met in the collective and that our souls, you know, need that kind of work with other people. We don't get to, you know, being part of something bigger, like you were talking about, you know, Lisa with the singing, it just reminds us how we're all interconnected in so many ways. And like, we're, we're trying to do that with our events now. So now that we're in a hybrid world, like we're, we're working on hybrid events. You know, like we had a call, some of us had a call earlier today about like the stop cop city stop in Atlanta and Mm. how is 350 New Hampshire going to like engage in that. And I think we're piecing together the people showing up in a physical space and whether that's like having a conversation around like what are the connections and like the intersections between um, defunding and abolishing the police and climate work. And also, like, how do we support on the ground? How do we get people who are just seeing the, you know, the Facebook live after it's been recorded? Like, what's the call to action in that caption that makes sense for somebody to be able to do? Like, calling the offices that are investing in the Atlanta Police Foundation is, like, one of our calls to action in that campaign right now. We need to be able to meet everybody where they're at and it includes the people that can't come out, the people who are just on our Instagram and see our story and showing them how easy it is to sign into um, in support or opposition of a bill, because that's what's happening right now um, in New Hampshire's legislative cycle. And I just I think that the hybrid of organizing is something that people were really trying to figure out right now because we had this big everybody in person all the time and then COVID and then everything online all the time and everyone got zoomed burnout like a lot I know you did Erin like (laughs) Uh and and so now it's trying to figure out this like what's the in-between you know there's there will always be immune compromised people we're learning about the complexities of long COVID and boosters. It's been a while since there's been a new booster out. So how do we have a safe space 
in terms of like health? And how do we have a space that is also safe for fostering new engagement from people who have just been like, you know, a social media lurker for a while? Do you mind um, either of you like just saying a little bit more about Stop Cop City? Because by the time this comes out, there's I mean, there's a lot happening there, but it's probably still going to be a thing in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, totally. Um, So there are multiple militarized police training facilities that currently exist or are proposed across the United States. And one is in Atlanta in um, where they, the Atlanta police foundation. So a private entity is looking to take 300 acres of a forest, turn it into this mock city so that they can practice. I'm using air quotes, practice what it's like to, I don't know, contain or manage or just kind of like be assholes to people that are protesting in cities, I'll say. Um, And they're already being assholes right now. So this campaign has been going on for about two years now. People were knocking on doors with neighbors to the forest. People had no idea what it was. Um, It forced for there to be a public public comment period. There were 17 hours of testimony and 70% of those 17 hours of people were in opposition to this project. And that was like mid 2021. Um, So fast forward to now, it's actually the week of action, the week of March uh, 4th. And there have been rallies and concerts and a lot of like positive spaces, which was really needed in that moment because There was a murder by the Georgia State Police of an organizer who was just in the tent in the woods. So there are people that have been living in the forest for a while. And there was um, this this murder of Tortuguita. And so there's a lot of people that are kind of like really fully committed because of this murder, but also because there's so much more that we can strive for than further investing in the police and militarization of the police. Um, And just recently... In the last couple of days, there have been even more um, arrests of people that are just involved. So some people have been arrested for holding a sign. Other people have been arrested for attending a concert. Um, And they're trying to the police are trying to connect the dots between um, some of these more anarchist uh, potential and alleged destruction of property and somebody who's just bringing their kid to a preschool rally. Like that we were meeting with people who were doing preschool rallies when I went down there. And so now there's 42 people facing domestic terrorism charges, which is unheard of in the climate and all of these sorts of movements for someone to be charged with domestic terrorism in this space. Um, Many of them have no bonds. One was a legal observer who uh, does have a bond of $5,000, but like, when you're a legal observer of any sort of space, you're wearing this like fluorescent green hat mm-hmm. and like you have a conversation with any police officer that you're near to say, I'm a legal observer. I am not engaging in this activity. I am making sure that there is safety and that there is someone to see what is legally happening between the police and residents of the area. So I don't know what it's going to be like in early April, but there's will likely be calls to action um, if you go to defend ATL Forest on Twitter would be my best recommendation. Um, There's a lot of people organizing around bail funds, around getting letters to the people that are jailed and getting them the type of diets that they need. Like there's this one person who has not been able to receive a vegan diet for months. And it's just a full court press from all different levels of Georgia and then also the FBI police on how can we scare people out of this? How do we how do we get the agenda that we want? And how do we scare people out of being engaged in this? And it's just making the organizers on the ground, the activists on the ground, the moms on the ground, whoever, to say, no, like, we want to keep this public forest that, like, it's, it's a nice walking path. There's, like, used to be a cute gazebo with a piano in it that had people playing it. And the police just, like, tore down this gazebo with a piano in it. And it's... It's not the only, it's not just an Atlanta thing. Over 40% of the people that would be trained if it's built would be executing these tactics in other spots of the United States. So we could see this potentially in like Manchester, New Hampshire, the Queen City of New Hampshire. And if there's some sort of, you know, uprising protest because of some horrible thing that happens or a bad Supreme Court decision, then 
we could see these tactics used on our own folks here in New Hampshire or your own folks listening down at home, wherever you are. Thank you for explaining all of that, too, because I think a lot of people don't understand just what like the the violence that like police will bring to these kinds of spaces when people are not it's not illegal to hold a sign. It's not illegal to attend a concert like you were saying, like domestic terrorism is such a far reach. You know, oftentimes these things get kind of swept under the rug and people don't realize just the abuses that are happening on so many levels. As we start to wrap up, I want to ask you both, you know, this is a question that I like to ask everyone. You know, what does it mean for you to give a damn? You both are kind of like the most damn givers that I know. (laughs) You have to come up with a better name than that. But like, you both are kind of like embody that for me, but I'd love to hear your take on it. In the moment of engaging with the police at that coal plant and, and walking up and singing, I was thinking of my past cousin who was older to the point where like I knew him but we didn't have really good like specific memories and then he passed in a skiing accident at the age of 23 when I was like elementary school and he was very committed to environmental work not so much organizing but a lot of like environmental engineering and how do we get to the solutions through technology kind of piece and I only learned about that sort of work at his memorial service. So I kind of felt like I had like missed out on stuff I could have had learned from him. And then about less than three years, four years later, my youngest cousin was born. And as I'm like in middle school, early high school, I was like, these people have never met each other. And like, they're, they're so interconnected in my brain and watching this younger cousin who's now 16 grow up and become this like, full-on tech person like multiple coding languages and goes to like summer tech camp and I'm just like they they would have gotten along so well and like I like I think of the two of them because you need to think about the individual people or I think that someone should think about the individual people that are being impacted and whether that's somebody that you know that's in a like frontline community or if it's somebody that you know that is 16 years old and is inheriting the earth like that is what I hold on to when I'm like, what's my why? And why am I doing this? And like, I I give a damn because I think that my cousin deserves to have a livable future. And I want to like continue on the thought that my older cousin who passed had, which I imagine that he thought of me the same um, as being his younger cousin. And I just like, I'm excited to when I get to the age of being able to have the conversation with the younger cousin about how cool, like it comes up in conversation, but about how cool this older cousin was because, you know, maybe in college it'll be a better time to talk with him. But I I give a damn because of like the people that I know that also gave a damn and that can't anymore or the people who shouldn't have to give a damn because they're just living and they're just trying to survive. And I, I give a damn for myself because I know that I can always find some pieces in my life that I want to find joy in. And for me to find joy, I need to also find the aspects of life that maybe aren't joy so that I know what joy is experienced as, if that makes sense. I don't know. There's just like a plethora of emotions. What do you think about like, why am I doing this? And when I kind of focus in on like specifically climate, I think about those two folks And then when I think about like overall, like showing up for the other intersectional movements that are happening, I, it's about, this is my friend that's impacted by this, you know, like when I get pulled over with my friend who's half black, like it is a different experience for me than him. And I give a damn about police brutality because I give a damn about his life. And those are the kind of pieces that I think about are like, who are the individual people that are impacted by these different problems and systemic oppression issues in the world. And how I love them and how I care about them and how I want to continue to experience joy with them. And that's why I give a damn. I think I give a damn because mostly because I can't not like I do this work every day because right now that's all I can do. I think, yeah, from an individual perspective, there's a lot about my identity that where like laws, what's happening in the world impacts my life a lot. And 
I think in the space of like managing volunteers of, of doing this work to try to build a movement, I oftentimes think about uh, this one guy who lives in my town who like a number of years ago before my time at 350 New Hampshire, I was like hosting these, like I call them like coffee and climates. And I just like, like phone banked a bunch of people and then like just got them to a cafe to just like talk about what they were doing. And I remember thinking at the time that they were like a bit of a drag, that it was like something my manager told me to do. And she was just having everyone do across the state. Um, But it didn't like come, there was no like action that I was bringing. There was no like campaign that I was involved in. So I was kind of like, why are we doing this? What's the point of these? Mm -hmm. But there's a guy who went to those who I still talk to regularly. And he, every time I talk to him, he's like, you had those meetings way back when that I went to and I used to go to every one of them. And it led me to meet people who have changed my life and who mm-hmm. I'm still working on this like huge project to get community power in my town. And so he attributes his his involvement, his involunteering, the like massive project that they're working on now, partially to like work that I had done back then, which always makes me feel really, really good. And I think that there is definitely a part of this work that although, yes, it can be like really sad, it can be depressing at times that just you seeing how actually easy it is sometimes to like make an event happen, to bring people together, to make connections that lead to something really huge can just make you feel really, really good. And I think sometimes people who are not involved in like politics or climate organizing talk to me about it and are like, how are you not so depressed? Like I'm so, I admire you for still doing this work. And sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm not that depressed by it anymore. You know, like it doesn't make me that sad anymore. I think just because of the, like the surrounding that I have in like my Zoom surrounding, my Zoom life where people definitely understand the reality, but are just like, seems more like overwhelms, um, overcome with like the need to, to do, to act, to like be with them and one another and what we're facing and how that has felt like a more, more powerful to me than the the crisis sometimes, <laughs> not all the time. So yeah, those are, those are some reasons why. I love that you shared that because I think that is like so powerful. Sometimes we never know what ripple effects are going to come from the actions that we have. And that's like such a beautiful thing to be able to name and to be able to see yourself in that kind of starting point for that person's journey, Mm -hmm. you know, that kicks ass. I'm so excited. And that's, yeah, it's especially cool. Like doing youth work and just seeing like seeing all our, we have a team of high school students and seeing all of like, then the organizing they go on to do, not with us, but in their own colleges or the jobs they get at other places and like the organizing that they take with them on into their own lives is just like, so fucking cool to see. (laughs) I love that so much. It is like, you know, this is my very hokey thing. Like you're planting the seeds for the next generation. It's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Lisa's reaction just like made my day. <laughs> Sound I, like my uncle. That's very excited that I do this work. <laughs> <laughs> but though, looking back, though, I'm like so grateful for the people that did that for me, and to think mm-hmm. about like the 350 New Hampshire staff and volunteers that did that for me, and my my parents who definitely did it for me throughout my whole life. And yeah, it, it is was so important to me to have those people to look at. So now, yeah, it's fun to, to hold that that role for some people. And there's probably some people in your life who hold that role for you still too, that kind of like help provide inf- insp- information, help provide inspiration. Like, I know we're like, we're all kind of on the other side of that, but like, I still find that there are people who mentor me and in some ways and inspire me. And I'm like, oh, I, yeah, I need that. I need that as well. A hundred percent. And there will be people like, I was just telling Lisa about this, that there was someone I was in a meeting with who I don't know very well, like two weeks ago. And 
I was in a meeting with a bunch of like very, very seasoned activists and he just came with like so much heart and it kind of like stopped me in my tracks because I don't hear that all the time now being like an ED in spaces where a lot of people have been doing this for a lot of years to then just hear someone just being like, I need to, I need to see all of you in person. Like we need to be actual humans to each other. And I want to know all of you. I was like, this is the sweetest thing I've heard today. (laughs) We don't always take time to cultivate those deep relationships anymore. And they're so valuable. Yeah. And like, we're Mm. doing that in our team. Like we're starting to do like monthly in-person staff meetings and like, We've only had one so far, but like, I feel like they're different. Like, it's so nice to have the little chit chat over lunch with whoever you're doing work alongside, whether it's paid or unpaid labor that's like trying to work towards this stuff. And, you know, our team is great. And they're also some of my like work friends, you know, like I I think that that's great about our team of seven that we have. You're both doing such impactful work. And I'm so very, very excited that you both joined me today. I'm really honored that you took the time to to do this. And I'm just excited to be in relationship with both of you too. And to have known you both for so many years, like, and see you like grow in this work and see you both like take on the the co-ED roles um, with such like fire, like makes me really happy. A quick note, 350 New Hampshire is an independent 501c3 organization by and for the people of New Hampshire. They are not legally or financially connected to 350.org national, and they do all of their own fundraising right here at home in New Hampshire. I highly encourage folks to donate to them in honor of Earth Day coming up later this month. Check the show notes for links. Thank you to Emma and Lisa for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about their work, feel free to connect with them on LinkedIn or check out 350nh.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It's produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Clary Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. 